All right. And since since Jim was in baseball, we'll say that he is batting cleanup tonight. He's batted cleanup before for us, I believe. And just the way it worked out, each man, when I first gradually were giving away the spots and thinking about the different men, and as it all came together, to me at that time, I thought it seems like each man really has the place that he needs to have. And, and it, it sure appears to be the providence of the Lord in that. We've had uh, wonderful messages and each man uh, delighting in the, in the message he has. Brother Jim has been in this text before, and uh, I'm glad that he's with us tonight. Brother Jim, if you will come. Good evening, brethren. We appreciate again your pastor and the elders of the church in inviting us to come and speak God's Word to us tonight. It's been a privilege to be part of this wonderful conference uh, this week, coming now to the final session, 11 sessions, or 11 speakers and 12 sessions, covering the book of Hebrews under the theme of Christ is Better. My topic has been assigned for the final message is Christ as a better altar. If you'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 9 through 16. And noting especially verse 10. I'll be reading tonight from the New King James uh, Version. While you're turning there, I'd like to have a brief prayer, all right? Father, we stand in need this evening that you work upon these faculties that you have provided for us for these many years. Give me recall, not only in my mind, but warm my heart as I present the engrafted word this evening. I pray also for my hearers that with the difficulty of the subject before us, that you might captivate their minds to be able to focus on the word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Follow me as we begin in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside of the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. May God bless his word to our hearts tonight. 
I'm speaking to you today from the pulpit of the Dominion Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This is the concluding message of the church's 2020 Fall Bible Conference covering the theme, Christ is Better, in the book of Hebrews. The conference consists of 12 sessions with 11 speakers, covers the book of Hebrews, and my topic, I repeat again, is Christ a better altar. A brief introduction is now in order. What's going on in the book of Hebrews? Many Jewish believers, having left Judaism to embrace Christianity, are now reversing their course and returning to Judaism. They were doing so in order to escape the persecution being applied by their families and their countrymen. And the writer of the book of Hebrews exhorts them to, quote, go on to perfection, chapter 6 and verse 1. His appeal is based on the superiority of Christ over the Mosaic system. The Jewish argument is as follows. By abandoning the temple and its ordinances, you have apostatized from God's prescribed order of worship. Repent and turn back to God's way, or else face His wrath and destruction. The writer now enters into a doctrinal and practical running debate with these Jewish arguments by showing that the new covenant is a far superior system of worship in that it fulfills and replaces the Mosaic order. Christ is better than the angels, for they worship Him. He's the ministrator of a better covenant than that of the law. He's better than Moses, for He created Moses. He's better than the Aaronic priesthood, for His sacrifice was once for all time. He is better than the law, for He mediates a better covenant. Thus there is more to be gained in Christ than there is to be lost in Judaism. Pressing on in Christ reveals true faith and discipline and a visible love as seen in good works. Our first heading now this evening we will speak under the topic, The Biblical Concept of an Altar. Hebrews is a difficult book for Gentile Christians because we are not acquainted with, for the most part, with the Jewish system. That's why it's difficult to understand unless we understand the Old Testament system, particularly surrounding the altar. My approach to this text of Scripture is to first to give a summary of the text in advance and then return and show in detail how we arrived at the conclusion or the summary. In other words, we'll tell you where we're going and then come back and show you how we got there. The first requires, this first requires that we are familiar with the understanding of what the altar meant to a Jewish person. The word altar was a table, a platform, or an elevated place on which a priest 
placed a sacrifice as an offering to God. The Hebrew word for altar means a place of slaughter or sacrifice. While this relates primarily to animal sacrifices, the altars of the Old Testament were not restricted to animals. Portions of grain and other items could sometimes be used. Sometimes altars were used to remind the Israelites of their heritage or to call attention to a major event that is seen in Joshua 22, verses 26 through 29. Sometimes an altar might even be used as a place of refuge, as seen in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 50 and 51, and also 1 Kings 2 and 28. Now during the days of Moses, two priestly altars assumed important roles in the ritual of the tabernacle in the wilderness. These were the altar of burnt offerings and the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering as described in Exodus 27 verses 1 through 8 was placed directly in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, which was the central place of worship. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 6. And there this altar of burnt offering was used for the daily burnt offering and the meal offerings. This altar declared, now listen, that entering into the presence of God in the tabernacle must first be preceded by a sacrificial atonement for sin. This altar was made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze, and the corners of the altar extended at the top into projections that looked like horns. This is the altar which is in focus on our text this, in our text this evening. Meanwhile, the golden altar of incense, as set forth in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10, was located inside of the tabernacle, just before the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, Exodus 40, verses 26 and 27. And priests burned incense on this altar every day, so its fragrance would then be filling the tabernacle. The tabernacle and its ordinances of worship would later be replaced by the huge temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem. Now most of the animals sacrificed on this brazen altar would serve as food for the priest, some even for the offerer themselves. But some were forbidden to be eaten. Thus, this was especially true of the animals slain on the annual day of atonement, in which even the high priest on that day could not eat of the flesh of the sacrifices, but was to carry the entire remains after the blood was shed of the animal outside of the camp and burn it completely. 
This is the ritual that is being described in our text. Are you all with me now? Are we now familiar with what is going on in the text? We will say more about this later. Second heading. Let's look at a full summary of the meaning of the text now in advance. This is to show where we're going, and then we will show in detail how we reach the summary which presents itself to us. If you glance at your scriptures, if you have them with you, in verse 9, we are presented with the high value by the Jews upon sacred meats which were used in these sacrifices. And these had to be observed carefully as prescribed in the Old Testament scriptures. Note the setting for our text tonight. The unbelieving Jews were warning their brethren that by abandoning the temple worship, they no longer had access to this altar, which was required by the system to be in place before they could enter into the holy presence of God. They also no longer would have access to the physical food which came from the sacrifices. Hence, they have left the only true way of worshiping the one and only true God. Do we see the law court here, where one set of lawyers is arguing against our writer here tonight? Now, the flow of thought which is given by our writer occurs in this manner. The unbelieving Jews were saying that Christians did not have an altar, and thus they have no place of sacrifice, and thus no physical foods upon which to feast. Our writer replies that Christians do have an altar, which is far better and superior than that found in Judaism. This altar is found in Jesus Christ as the great sacrifice of atonement and is the spiritual food upon which the faithful feed daily. The sacrifice of Christ naturally suggests the idea of his suffering. And then comes the thought that we should be the companions of his suffering. And this can be done by going outside of the city, which is the emblem of this earthly existence. And there we endure a death of shame and pain like he did. And this then leads to the final thought in summarizing our text, that as Christ is the true sacrifice, all of our sacrifices as spiritual priests are of a figurative and spiritual nature. They are no longer sin offerings, but simply sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And these sacrifices are not to consist of words only, but reveal themselves in good works or deeds. Such is what I understand is presented to us in verses 9 through 16. Now then that we have know where we're going, let's now look at some of the details in our text tonight. Look in verses 10 and 11 where we will propose to compare the two altars. 
Our writer says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Now notice the identity of the two parties. We represent those who are Christians. They or those represent the Levitical priest. Here's our contrast. Now let's look at the identity of the two classes of offerings. This is important. So they're sort of complex, but it is important. Just as there were classes of offerings in the Old Testament. Let's look at these two classes of offerings. We Christians have an altar of which we have a right to eat but of which those who serve the tabernacle under the old covenant economy, they had no right to eat of their altar. I mean, on the Day of Atonement. There are several meanings given by Christians on this passage. John Brown, in his commentary, which is my favorite New Testament commentary of his works, it lists the three leading views held by Christian teachers as to the meaning of the text. He first lists two views which he believes come short of the meaning. He says, first, the meaning of the apostle does not seem to be, one, as some have supposed, we Christians have an altar, meaning the Lord's table, to which no Jew continuing to practice the rites of Judaism can be admitted. Then he lists another interpretation which he rejects, which is the majority view, which is we Christians have an altar, uh, nor does it mean we have a sacrifice, uh, those who practice the rites of Judaism cannot be admitted. That is, any Jew that's offering at this sacrifice there in, uh, in Old Testament Judaism cannot be admitted to the Christian altar. Brown rejects that interpretation. But we read instead, we Christians are allowed to feed on the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins the sins of the people of God, listen, which even the priests serving under the Old Testament economy were not permitted to do so. So here are the three leading interpretations. I side with Brown on this, the third view. I do so for the following reasons. The first two views believe that the Jewish priests were forbidden to eat of the Christian altar as long as they were adhering to the Levitical order. Stay with me. This idea is that of prevention. I don't believe that's what the text is saying. The third view is what I call the superior or better view, which the theme of our book this week this week. Is unfolding. Why so? Because the third view shows how the Christian altar is superior or better than the Jewish altar. 
in that the Christians are permitted, even commanded, to eat of our altar, while even the Levitical priests were forbidden to eat of the sacrifice on the Jewish altar. So the Christian altar is superior to the other. It's not the focus, the primary, that this forbids the Jewish priest from eating. This view fits into the theme, Christ the better or superior altar. The Jewish altar was emblematic and ceremonial, while the Christian altar is gracious and spiritual. We are allowed to feast on a sacrifice of the highest and holy class, which the Jews were not allowed to feed upon as taken from the Jewish altar. Now let's look at the next subdivision. The significance of feeding upon the food which comes from the two altars, verses 10 and 11. Let's look first at the food which comes from the Jewish altar. A question now arises. Let me get a drink. What was the nature and benefit which the Jews and the Jewish priests received from feeding upon the sacrifices? What benefit did they obtain from that? I reply, there was nothing superstitious about eating the food from the sacrifices. It was common food, everyday food. The animals were normal animals which were eaten on a daily routine and contained no spiritual benefit. The sacrifice was purely emblematic and feasting upon the sacrifice was purely emblematic. And the same holds true for the Lord's table in Reformed and Evangelistic services in spite of what the Catholic Church proclaims. If you're familiar with the altar in the Catholic Church, then they transform the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's superstition, my hearers. So the Old Testament animals, there was nothing superstitious in them. You could eat them day in and day out. It was common food, just like the bread and the wine that we partake of. Common drink and common food, but they're emblems, not something superstitious, hocus-pocus, and they're turned into something else. That's the teaching of the Catholic Church in their altar. Now note, the eating of the Jewish sacrifice was a natural emblem of receiving from the sacrifice the benefits it was intended to secure. Now what were those benefits? They were, listening, number one, atonement for ceremonial guilt. Two, removal of ceremonial pollutions. Number three, access to the tabernacle and temple worship. Number four, 
of being in a state of reconciliation and fellowship with God. Five, sitting at his table and partaking of the blessings promised and protected from the evils therein that were given under the old covenant. In eating of this this food on a daily basis as a sacrifice, God then likens the actions of that being of eating from, listen, his table. The altar was his table. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 7, we read where God rebukes the sinning of the priest in this manner. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Do you see the altar? God is likening it unto His table, where they sat down and feasted with each other. These are ceremonial and other blessings which flowed from partaking of the Jewish altar. This altar then was viewed as God's table, where He and His people feasted together in fellowship with each other. This is what I understand to have been the benefit of feasting on the sacrifices coming from the Jewish altar. Now let's look at the food which comes from the Christian altar. We come to inquire as what the nature of this food is as to its identity and its nature. Listen, the Christian altar involves a sacrifice upon which the Christian feeds daily, not once a year. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself and occurred in his death upon the cross. It was a sacrifice for sin, like unto the day of atonement in the old covenant. It is the basis for what became known as the New Covenant, which had been predicted in the Old Testament to replace the Old Covenant and the Levitical system of worship. This altar is a spiritual altar. Do you catch the difference? And Christians are said to feed upon the sacrifice when they... Listen, this sounds familiar. Eat his flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, hmm. who gave himself as a sacrifice and an offering in the place of his people. This altar is described by Jesus in the sixth chapter of John in Christ's sermon on the bread of life. Could you hold your location there in Hebrews and turn over to John chapter 6? Maybe this will, by connecting these together, open an understanding of what Jesus meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. John 6 verse 51. There we read, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, and he who eats this bread will live forever. Now then, would you go back to our text in Hebrews. It is here that Jesus is describing the Christian altar. He is asserting that he is what? The way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father, into the presence of the Father, except through him. And then he proceeds to explain that in order to enter into the presence of God, one must come in a new and living way. One must now eat the flesh and drink his blood. This was a startling statement which offended the Jews, as seen now in verse 52 when they ask, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Jews are thinking in the realm of the literal and the physical, but Jesus is thinking in the realm of the figurative and the spiritual. See the contrast? If the eating and drinking of Christ is spiritual, then the question arises, what does it mean to spiritually feed on the sacrifice of Christ? Again, I say I'm glad you're asking these questions because I wouldn't have anything to preach on if you weren't asking these questions, okay? What does it mean to spiritually feed on the sacrifice of Christ? It means, listening, that the Christian believer receives from this sacrifice the blessings which it was intended to bestow. Next question, then what are those blessings? This is what we then hold is contained in these blessings. Number one, the forgiveness of sins. You like to feed on that thought? The sanctifying or cleansing of our natures. One day we're going to be without sin, never to sin again. That's a wondrous thought, is it not? Something to feed on. Thirdly, reconciliation with the Father. Hmm? At peace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that a marvelous 
taste to our spiritual taste buds. Fourthly, boldness to approach the throne of grace. We don't have to come like a little puppy with his tail between its legs. We can boldly approach the throne of God. Fifthly, spiritual fellowship with God, wherein we feast at the table of a reconciled deity. These are all the blessings we partake of by feeding on the Christian's spiritual altar, which is Christ. It is at this table that we reflect upon that which satisfied his justice, Brother Mark, magnified his law, glorified all of his attributes, and gave him perfect satisfaction. It is as we hear of this that we discover that our guilty conscience becomes quieted. Our nature is transformed, and our hearts are made to rejoice. In reference to the sacrifice of His Son, we can hear the Father saying, I am now fully satisfied. And we reply back, so are we. Can you say that tonight? If God is satisfied with the work of Christ on this altar, should we not be so? He says to us from this table, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we reply, This is our Savior in whom we are well pleased. I ask you, Are you well pleased with Christ today? Hmm? Are you? Does your heart burn with delight as the Scriptures are opened unto you? Is not the spiritual food truly food for the soul? My brethren, this is soul food, and it beats any soul food you can find in Alabama barbecue. This is soul food tonight. It should be evident now that our writer is telling his readers not to fall back to an inferior system of worship, even though that system was ordained and ordered by God. The Christian's food from the Christian's altar is far better than that of the Jewish altar. The Jewish people were but eating the emblem of the blessings. The Christians have the blessings themselves. How can ceremonial forgiveness compare to actually moral forgiveness? How can ceremonial cleansing compare to the actual cleansing of the conscience? The Jewish high priest could not even eat of the sacrifice of atonement for all of the people of Israel. But we are permitted to eat daily, hourly, without ceasing, upon the one who suffered in our place, the just in the place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I ask you, my hearers tonight, does this not leave a sweet taste in your mouth? Oh, fill our cups, Lord. Lift them up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me. 
feed me, feed me. Hmm? Can you just not imagine and, and celebrate how much more you have in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ to feed upon the gospel in all of its completion as opposed to the ceremonies that were set forth as emblems of that which is to come out here. It has arrived. Don't go back, the writer has said, to the elementary emblems and figures. Now let's look at verses 13 and 14. The exhortation to persevere in Christ. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. This is a theme of identification with Christ. Look at the significance of the expression outside the camp or outside the gate. These two expressions relate to the same activity. Outside the camp describes the campground of Old Testament Israel, and outside the gate describes the city of Jerusalem, which was then existing, where Jesus was crucified. Same term, two expressions for one meaning. The fact that the sin offerings and the burnt offerings were burned outside the Israelite camp, Exodus 29.14, Leviticus 4.21, leads us now to another parallel with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Just as those Jewish offerings were burned outside of the camp, so the death of Jesus Christ occurred outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. There's a symbolism here in the location of the sacrifice of Jesus and that of the animals. Those who go to the altar of Jesus, which is Calvary, can no longer worship at the altar of the temple. There's a parallel here. They must now leave Israel. That is, they must go outside the city gate and leave the Jewish system. This required a clear break with Judaism and the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And to identify themselves now with Jesus and the New Covenant. In so doing, the Hebrew Christians now must be willing to bear the stigma of identifying themselves with this person, Jesus, and Jesus alone. It is not Jesus plus the Old Testament system, what the Judaizers tried to do in Galatia. And this, uh, in so doing, they, they must be willing to identify themselves with Jesus alone. And this would occur mostly from their immediate family and friends. That is, this persecution that would come upon them by identifying with Christ and Christ alone. Not only the, fa the family and the friends, but their employers. This would require a complete break with the system that was magnified in that great temple. Now listen, this suffering, Christian suffering, not only serves to separate a people 
unto God. But it also finally severed once and for all for all of God's connection with the apostate nation of Israel. Not all Christians believe what I've just said, but that's my conviction on this. God had been sending prophet after prophet to warn the nation of his impending wrath, and they not only rejected these prophets, but killed many of them in the process. Now God has sent his only begotten son, and what did they do with him? They murdered him, the Lord of glory. In return, Ichabod has been written over the nation of Israel. The glory has departed. Jesus' words have now been fulfilled elsewhere. And the blessings which have been upon this nation, the Jewish nation, have been removed by the mark and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Wonder what nation that might be. Hmm? The only way any physical descendant of Abraham can now or ever be blessed by God is to bow the knee and kiss the Son and become part of a new nation in which all shall know Him from the least to the greatest. Those who murdered Jesus believed Him to be such an apostate Jew by claiming to be God, did not want him to be killed within the city of Jerusalem, lest his body and blood so defile the city of God, Mount Zion, and cause it to become an unclean thing. Away with him, they cried. God in return said, This people is now such an unclean city that I will cast it off and build a new city wherein righteousness shall shine forth forevermore. Away with Jerusalem below and look up to the Jerusalem above where my Son reigns as Lord and Savior, King of kings. That's where the Jews are to look today, not to Jerusalem. Not to the temple, not to an altar there, but to the one who seated has completed the work of sacrifice. Let's look briefly under the concept looking for a city. Building now upon the imagery of the patriarchs, which was presented back in chapters 11.1 and 11.16, 12.22, our writer explained that believers must be willing to bear the shame of identification with Jesus because they do not have a permanent city upon the earth. And therefore, they are to look for... You know what the next text I'm going to read? They are to look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11.10 Likewise, Christians of the day must make a clear break with the love of the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
and endure its mockings and persecution because we seek God's approval and reward and not man's. John Owen says, The main business of believers in this world is to diligently seek after the city of God or the attainment of eternal rest with Him. And this is the character whereby they may be known. End of quote. What are you seeking after? Hmm? Do other people know you're seeking after that? If you were on trial tonight for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there? You're going to try to be a silent Christian? Hmm? No, identify with Christ. Go outside the city of this present world and look for a better city whose foundations is builder and maker is God. Verses 15 and 16, look at the priesthood of all believers. Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. In verse 15, do you see that we are now called new covenant priests? All Christians are now priests whose duties are to offer up sacrifices. 1 Peter 2.5 We are told you also as living stones are being built upon a, a, spiritual, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we are told, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. Hmm? Who are His special people? Those who have been born again and placed their faith in Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. Who once were not a people, listen, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Look in verse 16 under the thought of, of new covenant sacrifices. The new covenant sacrifices are not animal sacrifices. We believer priests are to worship the Lord by continually praising and giving thanks to Him for our eternal salvation. Verse 16 now continues to identify some of the spiritual sacrifices Christians are called upon to offer up as believer priests. The term used here means doing good. I remember when I was unconverted, I used to mock Christians, oh, they're a bunch of do-gooders. Now I'm not ashamed of that. For we are commanded to be do-gooders. It refers to works of mercy and benevolence which spring forth from the kindness 
and generosity of the believer's heart. Those who have received God's grace in forgiveness knows what it is or know what it is to be in need. And our gratitude for God's help in our time of need overflows and leads us to reach out to help others in times of need. This help involves sharing our natural substances with others. It opens up our wallets and our purses as well as our hearts. God is well pleased with such sacrifice which possess the qualities presented in these two verses. They are, number one, praise. Number two, thanksgiving. Number three, giving. Number four, sharing. All of those are found in verses 15 and 16. It is by feeding, clothing, helping to heal the sick, etc., that we are serving our Lord. We're giving Him a cup of cold water when we help someone else out. Closing summary now. There is so much more that could be said upon the nature of the Christian altar, along with numerous supporting scripture, but time will not allow, so I must close for now. In doing so, the research for my sermon, I came across this statement by John MacArthur, one of the leading spokesmen for biblical Christianity in our age. He stated that, quote, verses 10 through 14 are among the most difficult in the book of Hebrews. Hmm. <laughs> they are subject to many interpretations and applications, and I do not want to be dogmatic in the views I present. That's MacArthur. Interesting, Pastor. In researching the topic that has been assigned to thee, I, this, I have found this to be true. I wish to thank Pastor Little for being so kind in, in assigning this topic to an old worn-out man like me. He knows, this pastor knows, that my mind is no longer as clear as it once was. And I am very suspicious he's trying to wipe out what mental faculties I have left <laughs> to give me the most difficult passage Save it to the last. I hope some clarity, though, has been added to the topic to offset what confusion may have been inserted into the thinking of my audience and listeners tonight. Usually there's an appropriate place in a sermon to make applications. There's a new buzzword word uh, called today, uh, by, uh, what, what is it? I forgot what it was. <laughs> Steve, what does your pastor always say at the close of a message? And rather than using the word application, huh? Takeaway. How many of you have heard that term? Hmm? Takeaway. All right, I'm going to give you a couple of takeaways uh, this evening. But really, they're just plain old-fashioned applications. <laughs> John Owen said there's no more place for an altar in a Christian church than 
as it was in the Old Testament ritual as such. And he says, if you try to put an altar in a Christian church, it's a derogatory thought reflecting upon the finished work of Christ. So I maintain this. The Roman Catholic system of having an altar in their church is pure superstition and blasphemous. Hmm? Secondly, there's no more place for an altar in a Baptist church than there is in a Catholic church. I got warped as a child with going to the old-fashioned altar three times in a revival meeting and gave up on God. Where is that found in the Scripture? There's only one altar that's mentioned in the New Testament, and I've just described it to you. When I assumed the pastorate of a church in Missouri, I was there about half a year, and I got a letter one day from an elderly lady who had stopped attending there before I ever became pastor. And in that letter, she said, I want to explain to you why the First Baptist Church no longer has people saved than what they used to be having saved. Hmm? she went on to say, it's because you have taken the altar out of the church and people can no longer get to Christ without that altar. I don't want to offend unduly. Folks, that's as superstitious and blasphemous as the Catholic altar. You may have gone through that system of walking an aisle and praying a sinner's prayer and asking Jesus into your heart, and you may have truly been saved, but it wasn't because you did that. It was because the Holy Spirit of God opened your heart and saw, you saw Christ in the Gospel. In closing, I came across one of my favorite old songs called The Old Rugged Cross. And the group sang that in the prelude this morning, just before the message. I was taken back how the flow of the song corresponded with the flow of the text in Hebrews. If you have that in your songbook, do you have it there? Do you have a number? Broadman 71. We're not going to sing it right now, but we will in a little bit. I wish to read it to you and ask that um, you watch carefully the words and see if you agree with me the chronological order in the Old Rugged Cross song and the chronological order of how we have presented the message of the two altars tonight. The song goes like this. On a hill far away, outside the camp, stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and blessed for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, Judaism, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it 
the dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross that Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear going outside the city. Then he'll call me some day to my home far away, looking for a city where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down, and I will cling, persevere to that old rugged cross, not go back into Judaism and exchange it some day for a crown. Let's close in prayer. Father, I ask that you take these words this evening and help clarify some of the difficulty in understanding the topic before us. We look forward to a day yet ahead when we shall understand it perfectly when you assemble us around your throne in that city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Thank you, Lord, for the help tonight. In Christ's name.